part of the letter of Galatians. And so before we jump in, I want to start with a quick summary of the letter so far. This letter, the letter of Galatians, um, was written by the Apostle Paul, and it is basically, it's about the pure gospel of grace. It's about the nature of our faith in what Christ has done. And the Apostle Paul wrote this letter because he was concerned that these churches, these Christians, were deserting the gospel by distorting the message. There were some men who were teaching that these new Christians also needed to adopt some Jewish laws and customs in order to be saved. And Paul fiercely objects to this on the grounds that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. He goes on to explain the purpose of the law, which is why this is sort of a confusing topic, right? But he says the purpose of the law was never to save us, but it was to convict us of sin, to show us that we need to be saved. And Paul repeatedly talks about the law, uh, that period of Israel's history, as being a period of slavery or bondage. Um, But even then, not necessarily a bad thing, right? Remember the illustration that I gave a few weeks ago of the prison. Imagine that you were, I asked you to imagine that you were born in a prison, that you've never known the outside world. All you have known is life inside this prison. All you've ever seen is bars and cement, and you get the same meals every day, right? Just bland, simple food. You wear the same clothes every day. And that's all you know. That's all you remember because it's all you've ever seen. And so the question was, how could someone convince you, living in this prison, how could they convince you that the world outside is better than that prison? They could describe the world to you. They could show you pictures of the outside world to help you understand. They could sneak in better food so you would know what good food tastes like. But then imagine that that's all they ever did and you never got out. That would be very depressing, right? Unless you had some hope of actually getting out of the prison and experiencing the real world for yourself. And so I remember I told you in a similar way, the law is good because of what it does, because of what it shows us, but it can't get us out of prison. All it can do is help us know that we want to be out, that we need to be out, that something needs to change. It, it holds up a mirror for us and it shows us our chains. It shows us the bars. It shows us the cement. It doesn't let us stay comfortable in a prison of our own sin. It makes us long for something better. But if all we had was the law, that would be very depressing. Showing us and reminding us 
of our foolishness, of our failures, with no power to actually change the circumstances that we're in. If all we were given was the law, that's all we would have. Instead, God gave us the law to show us the need for Jesus. And so we have this promise that was given before the law, Paul says. Promise was given before the law that that someone would come and rescue us from this prison of sin and death. And then God gave the law to help us understand why we need that. And in fact, Jesus has already freed us from bondage and has adopted us into the family of God. So that's my summary. That's where we've been. And now we're ready for chapter 4, verse 21. This is God's Word. It says, Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the, to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. If you don't know the story, you can go back and read the, this story this afternoon. It's found in Genesis 16. God promised Abram and his wife that they would have a child. But if you know the story, they had some doubts about this, right? Because why? Because they were really old, right? I mean, you know, technically, biologically, right, Abraham could still have children. But Sarah, at the point when this promise was given, she was like 77 years old at the time, okay? And so... They didn't, they wanted to believe it, but it was kind of difficult, right? And so Sarah has the bright idea in Genesis 16 I know I'm going to let my husband lay with my Egyptian servant Hagar. And that's how we'll get this done. That'll work, right? And so Abraham agrees to this plan because he believes in that moment, that God needed a little help to fulfill His promise. So they're going to help God out, right? And so this is what happens. The text tells us Hagar gets pregnant, but it starts a lot of household drama. Sarah resents the fact that her maid servant has become pregnant by her husband. Easy to imagine that being a problem, right? And so she then begins to mistreat Hagar and runs her off. And then 13 years later, God finally gave Sarah a son at the age of 90. And you got to wonder, might that son have come sooner had they not tried to do it their way, right? Now, as a quick side note, at the end of that story, Moses tells us that God was gracious with Hagar. So even though she was cast out and rejected and abandoned, God saw her suffering. He visited with her, and he gave her her own promise for her son. 
So I just wanted to make that note, just because it's easy to just kind of forget Hagar as we move on. But God was gracious to her as well. But in the end, Abraham had two sons. He had Ishmael, the illegitimate son of a slave woman. And 13 years later, Isaac, the son of a free woman, the son of Sarah. Paul says one child was born, he says, according to the flesh. The other was born through promise. So what Paul does is he uses this story to demonstrate the difference between dependence on works versus dependence on God, also known as faith. And that's what I'm going to try to unpack for us this morning. Okay, Dependence on works versus dependence on God. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now listen, this does not hit us the way it should. Because we don't feel the weight of the personal offense. These three verses were highly offensive to Jewish people. Highly offensive, okay? Verbal assault level offensive. Why? Because the Jews were, literally, they were direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Paul says that allegorically, they're more like the children of Hagar and Ishmael. And at that time, in that culture, to these people, even today to Jewish people, this was a highly offensive suggestion, even as an allegory. Okay? Ishmael was the forefather of many of Israel's mortal enemies. And so this would have infuriated Paul's opponents. But Paul knows what he's doing. In fact, both Jesus and John the Baptist questioned the Jewish dependence on their ancestry. This is John speaking in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. It says, And we do not presume to say, or do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, stop thinking you're so special because of whose family you're born into. John 8, Jesus tells the Jews directly that they're children of the devil, not children of Abraham. 
And so here in Galatians, Paul is, is basically following this line of thought. This, this allegory is clear. People choosing to live under the law are living as illegitimate slaves. Christians who are united to Christ are instead children of promise. They are free, legitimate heirs of the kingdom of God. But you have to understand how offensive this was to Jewish people. I mean, it's just absolutely infuriating. Another important, I think, side note here, it was not common for the Apostle Paul or really any other New Testament author to use allegories in their teaching. In fact, I'm pretty sure this is the only time in Scripture that Paul uses an allegory. It was a tactic that was much more commonly used and and misused by Paul's opponents. They would say things like this. They would pick, pick passages out of the Old Testament and turn it into an allegory to make their point. And so I believe it's possible that Paul used it here in order to take a shot at them for their weak teaching methods. Now what he says is true. He also saturates his allegory with quotes from Scripture, which is something that they did not do. For instance, verse 27, For it is written, Paul says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. That's a quote from Isaiah 54. And so Paul is interpreting this to mean that there will be more Gentile believers than Jewish believers. Far more Gentiles will become children of God through faith in Christ. Verse 28, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. So notice he's now talking directly to the Gentiles. He's talking directly to the Galatian believers. These were non-Jewish converts to Christianity. And he's looking at them, and he's writing to them, and he's telling them, you don't have to work to become children of promise. That's what they're telling you. They're telling you you got to become Jewish to become children of promise. No, you don't. No, you don't. You already have it. It's already yours. Verse 29. But just as at that time he was, who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. This is important. In, in Genesis 21, Ishmael, the illegitimate son, mocked Isaac, persecuted Isaac, the, the, the son of Abraham and Sarah, believing that he should be favored because he was the firstborn. He was the oldest son of Abraham. But Ishmael was not the child of promise. 
And so if you remember also later on the story of Jacob and Esau, there's a little bit of that going on, okay? Verse 30, but what does the Scripture say? Quote, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. This is a direct quote from the request of Sarah asking Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael, which is what happens in verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So what Paul did in this section is he used Ishmael and Isaac, one son born the ordinary way, right? And one son born by supernatural means. And he uses these two boys to illustrate the difference, the fundamental difference between Judaism and Christianity. It was not enough to claim Abraham as their father. What Paul is saying is the real question that you have to ask yourself, believer, is which covenant are you now living under? Which covenant are you living under? Okay? Is it the covenant of works that you are under, or is it the covenant of grace? Now, this is where it gets just a little bit complicated, so put your thinking cap on and bear with me, okay? The law was given to Israel after Abraham, right? Meaning that the law was given under the covenant of grace. Christians for 2,000 years have had some struggle understanding why and when God gave the law and how did, it, how did it fit into this whole thing, right? And we've talked about this, that the law is a good thing, but it was never meant to be a means of salvation. It was given under the covenant of grace. We are not saved by law-keeping. The ancient Israelites were not saved by law-keeping, okay? I understand that some of our dispensational brothers and sisters believe that that's kind of how it worked. That's just not ever how it worked. That was not the point of it. Trying to live that way is to go back before Abraham and to try to live under the covenant of works. And it's a very bad idea because people living under the law simply will not inherit the kingdom of God. Only people living under the promise of grace. And the point then is this. If you hear nothing else, just, just hear this the next 10 seconds. We don't become Christians by any human means. So maybe clear what I'm saying, okay? It is not our efforts, it is not our works. It is not our intellect. It's not even our choice. There is no human effort or will associated with 
the miracle by which we become sons and daughters of the Father. It is a miracle work of God's grace. And I want to say something about the division that this causes between people, uh, even in the church. So another, a little bit of what I'm saying is a little controversial, okay? But here's the thing. People living under the law do not understand the nature of grace. And they will absolutely persecute people who do, even in the church. You see, it's not always the world out there that's causing problems for the church. Very often, it's the church that's causing problems for the church. It's the people on the inside, professing Christians, professing believers who don't really understand grace. It's the people who pridefully believe that they are better, that they are more religious than everyone else in the church. They're the ones who are causing most of our problems. That's what's happening in Galatians. And pride is such a, it's such a tricky thing. You see, it's not always... So I'm going to flip this because you're, this is not what you're expecting, but it's not always the law-minded people in the church who struggle with pride. Gospel-minded people struggle with pride too. You know, if you think that your understanding of the gospel is better than everyone else's understanding of the gospel, guess what? That's a problem too. If you think to yourself, so glad I'm not like those legalistic Christians, be careful. It's just as dangerous. Either it's grace or it's not. Lastly, I want us to focus for just a second on the benefits of living under the covenant of grace because that's what Paul is really saying here is that there's something special about being under that covenant of grace there's something different about Christians who are living under grace and not under law, right? It means that by faith all true believers are children of Abraham and therefore we are recipients of the promises of God. And I cannot stress this part enough, okay? Again, it had literally nothing to do with us. That's what the word grace implies, right? That's what it means. Just as Isaac had nothing to do with his supernatural birth to a 90-year-old woman, Isaac was something only God could do. And that was the point, God waited a long time so that they would get the message that they had nothing to do with it. Waiting and waiting and, and then 
against all odds. It's a miracle, right? And that is, that's the point. That is our religion. That's what Christianity is. Not what man can do for himself, but what God must do for us. This is a, a supernatural faith. We do not trust in ourselves that we were righteous or that we were smart or that we were gifted or that we were special. We trust only in God through Jesus. Self-reliance leads to slavery. We cannot save ourselves. Faith in Jesus leads to freedom. That's what this is about. And as an act of faith, as an expression of faith, we come now to the Lord's table. And I want to say something I don't usually say because I forget that this needs to be said every now and then. There's a lot of confusion about what the Lord's table is and what it's not. A lot of Christians think about this table as just a memorial or a symbol of something. But I want you to understand this table is far more than that. It is not just a memorial. It is not just a symbol. At the, at the minimum, it's that. But it is far more than that. This table is itself a promise of grace and a means of grace to the Christian. Jesus promises to be spiritually present with His people when we eat this together. Real spiritual presence. And that's a big deal, okay? We're not just... This isn't like having a tea party to think about Jesus. We actually believe, I actually believe, that this is not just symbolic, it is real grace, that by faith we are receiving the work of Jesus on our behalf. By just remembering it, we're, we're receiving grace. In other words, I believe there's something supernatural happening when we take this meal together. Now, it's not that it's actually becoming the flesh and blood of Jesus. I don't believe that. But Jesus is here. He is with us. He is giving grace. We are receiving the work of Jesus. So something supernatural is happening. And because of that, because that's true, it's also important that I say to you, this table is not for everyone. It is only for those who are the children of Abraham.